everybody, and welcome to Couch to Couch with Chuck LeBlanc. Today, I wanted to have a conversation with you about anxiety, your nervous system, and how this all works. So normally, we have a guest in the show, but today I thought I would be my own guest so you can get a snapshot into how I view uh, anxiety and how it operates in your day-to-day lives and some tools and some takeaways to kind of help you through it. So the following podcast is going to help you understand what happens when anxiety hits your brain, what it has to do with the nervous system, and also to give you some techniques to help you through it. Everyone experiences fear and anxiety at some point in their day-to-day lives. Some moments of fear or anxiousness can stem from sudden images, situations, or thoughts. They can come out of nowhere. Think of a car horn, scary image in a horror movie, or even a job interview. Some moments can be brought on by something coming up in the future, like a divorce, selling or buying a house, or an unresolved situation that makes us feel uneasy. Anxiety and fear can also show up when we are attempting something new, like public speaking or hang gliding. We can also get anxious about social gatherings, school, or even testing. One of the fun parts about being human, with this giant complex brain of ours, is that we can even get anxious thinking about being anxious. There are many things that can cause us to feel fearful or anxious on a day-to-day basis. However, there are also feelings of anxiety and fear that seem to just always be there, lingering. Regardless of where the feelings come from, they all stem from something in your environment making you feel unsafe or thoughts you have or experiences you've had in the past. There's something about what you're seeing, hearing, smelling, or thinking that is giving you a feeling of of a lack of safety. Or a better way to put it is that there's something about it all that makes your brain start to pay attention and become more alert. But where does this happen and why? It all takes place within what's called the limbic system. The limbic system, sorry, the limbic system is responsible for processing strong emotions, memory, and our survival instinct. The amygdala, along with the hippocampus, is part of this system. The amygdala itself is a very small, almond-shaped part of your brain, uh, and it's made up of 13 little parts. Each of these parts work together for a plethora of reasons, but for today we're going to focus on the fear and survival response aspect of these parts. Essentially, the amygdala is responsible for regulating our fear or survival responses, as well as playing a large role in how we process emotions. When we encounter something that brings about a sense of fear, worry, or uncertainty, the amygdala kicks into gear by slowly releasing cortisol into our brain and body, turning up our startled response, and gearing up our nervous system to take action. In this way, the amygdala is part of the limbic system, and it's the first part of the brain to react. However, this doesn't mean that the minute you feel something off about your environment, that you're going to jump out of your seat and start karate chopping the air, or that you're going to run for the hills or curl up into a ball. The way I want you to think about this uh, is in terms of capacity. Everyone has a different capacity for the amount of stress or threat they can sense in an environment before they react. Each capacity is different, and it can grow or shrink depending on how you use it and what happens in life. I like to think of this as like an RPM gauge in a car. Let's imagine that everyone has an RPM gauge that goes from 0 to 10. Depending on your experiences in life, what you have on your plate, and the little day-to-day stresses you meet, 
that needle on that gauge will slowly move up towards the red line, which is at the top of the gauge. The overall stressors that show up will determine how hard your amygdala is going to push down the gas pedal and for how long. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do uh, is to just think about, uh, take a few minutes, take a deep breath, and think about some stressors that show up in a day-to-day life. These can really be anything. Uh, you know, a couple of examples that I have that show up in my own life are this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, uh, financial issues, there could be like relationship troubles, feelings of loneliness. Uh, I know for myself, now that the COVID-19 pandemic has been in full swing, I get a bit uneasy when I go to the grocery store and there's crowds around me, and that's just because there's a new element or meaning behind the crowds being there and a little bit extra worry. So think about the list that you came up with or the thoughts you had about what stressors you have in your life. And I think it's safe to say that if we were all in a room, all the listeners are in the room talking about a lot of those stressors, we're going to be able to see that not only are they common to each and every one of us, but all of those stressors in one way or the other make us feel unsafe. Now, each one of those examples adds a different amount of pressure to the RPM gauge because there are different, there are different kinds of stimuli that your survival response wants to make sure it keeps an eye on. But the question is, what happens as your RPM gauge increases? The RPM gauge is revving up your sympathetic nervous system and gearing it up to take action. Your sympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for things like your heart, lung, digestive system, will start to, well, let me take that back. So your nervous system as a whole is responsible for your heart, lungs, and digestive system. The things that you don't really consciously think about, it it takes those over and makes sure they do what they need to do. And the nervous system itself has two ways of being. One is sympathetic, one is parasympathetic. So for one of them, Uh, The parasympathetic, it's all about rest. Think of it as rest, digestion, relaxation. And think of the sympathetic nervous system as the action nervous system. So this is where things gear up and need to do things. Uh, So the adrenaline gets pumping, the cortisol gets pumping, and then you move, whatever that looks like. Now, if a signal needs to be sent to your from your brain to your nervous system to actually get this cortisol and adrenaline produced, that's what's going to switch your nervous system into a sympathetic nervous system and you're going to gear up to take action. Think of the times where you get into a stressful uh, or frightening situation and you start to breathe faster and faster with short breaths. At the same time, your heart starts beating faster and your digestive system seems to clench. It's like your guts uh, around your stomach and your intestines begin to clench up. At this point, you may start to feel hot. Some of your muscles may start to tighten. And with each additional unsafe stimulus, the amygdala will start to engage or rev up your sympathetic nervous system more and more. Once that gauge is revved, it will hit the red line. Once it's revved up enough, it's going to hit that red line. And that, at that moment, you're going to act seemingly on autopilot. You're either going to go into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mode. Now let's talk about that for a minute. So as the RPMs increase and your systems begin to respond and become more alert, you're gonna start to feel it in your body. 
This is really important to understand. The feelings and sensations can be seen as a gearing up or a honing in on the environment. Now we all feel this, but how it feels can be different for everyone. My experience with increasing anxiety looks like, like this. So I will start to get, so let's say I'm going to a crowd. So I'm going to start to get a nervous stomach, almost like butterflies, which is uh, then going to trans transition into a little bit of pain, a little bit of crampiness, and maybe nausea, which is then going to move into a tightness in my chest. And then my body's going to start to get hot. At which point, depending on the situation and depending on how high my RPM gauge is revving, my breathing will be more rapid and shallow and my heart will start beating faster. In some cases, I can even hear my heart or feel it as, as if it's pounding. Basically, what's happening is that my heart starts beating really quick to push the oxygen to my muscles as well as the adrenaline to gear up my muscles for action, which of course means that my lungs are going to need to start breathing rapidly to get that oxygen going and moving where it needs to be. And so let's take a, a moment, just like we did earlier. So take a deep breath and think about a, a list of body sensations that take place when a stressor comes into a view. I mentioned a couple of my own sensations above, like speeding heartbeat, the rapid breathing, nervous stomach. What I find really interesting, and it's very common, is that your guts will clench. So your stomach, you can feel nervous or sick or tight. But if you think of the concept that you're gearing up for a fight, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because your body's going to want to automatically protect your vital organs. So that's why you're going to get really tight in your muscles, even around your chest. It's going to want to be able to take that punch or, or whatever it thinks is happening. So now that, now that we kind of understand that, we can move into... The amygdala in survival mode. We really can tie things together. So with enough stimuli, the amygdala, the amygdala sorry, can go into survival mode. And that's what the red line is. This is a really key point here. This starts with a flood of chemicals like cortisol, as we mentioned before, which shuts down the prefrontal cortex. Or that part of your brain responsible for planning and thinking things through, as well as curiosity. So how I want you to see this. So Basically, the way I want you to picture what the amygdala is doing is as if you're... So picture being like a caveman in the woods. It's usually my favorite metaphor for this. So you're a caveman in the woods and you are hunting. And so you're alert, you're hunting, you're looking for food. And then all of a sudden you hear a stick break. If you take the time to turn around and go, Oh, I wonder if that's a saber-toothed tiger. You're dead. Rather, if you throw that spear or run for your life immediately, you have a higher survival chance. So the amygdala is built like that. So one thing to remember is it doesn't care about long-term consequences. It's only the immediate thing right in front of you. So when you feel afraid or you get overwhelmed with anxiety, what's happening is your amygdala thinks whatever it is you're afraid of is a saber-toothed tiger. And the result of you not dealing with it is death. So when it gets into that mode, what it's going to do is shut down the thinking part of your brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. So that's the brain responsible for planning, thinking things through, curiosity. Then it kicks your sympathetic nervous system into gear. And for the first two instances, adrenaline will pump through the body, speeding up your heart rate, causing your breathing to shallow, to move the blood and chemicals throughout your body, help oxygenate to help oxygenate your muscles for action. It's at this point that you'll reach for whatever habit 
best helps you control this unsafe situation. And by control, what it's looking for is to literally increase safety in the immediate. So here's a very simple equation to help this make sense. So essentially, as the stress around you starts to add up, you begin to feel unsafe. The more unsafe you feel, the more fear starts to show up. From here, your amygdala will start to become more alert and scan for danger. Once danger is found, or once the little pieces of danger, as in if there's a lot piled on your plate, there's going to be a lot of little pieces of danger, they're all going to be seen as one, is found, your survival instincts kicks in and it'll start to take control and make the situation safer for you, whether you like it or not. So essentially, once the survival instincts kick in, your prefrontal cortex is gone, it's asleep, basically, because your body needs to survive whatever the hell is happening. Now this will increase, this will also increase stress. So the equation is this, increase stress because you feel unsafe. Because the fear is rising, you're going to become more alert. And your body will kick into action to take control to increase the safety. So you can see how this is circular. So one of the reasons I keep mentioning that your prefrontal cortex goes to sleep is because of how this whole process works. What I want you to think about, oh, I, I explained that. So the amygdala and the whole survival instinct part of your brain doesn't necessarily care what is happening in the environment, only if that it feels unsafe. Because your amygdala, remember, is the place that processes emotions, implicit memory, which have everything to do with feelings, not pictures or words. So it's not it's not a memory thing. It doesn't remember this piece, right? It just remembers how you felt about these pieces, which means the amygdala's only job here is to keep you safe in the present moment for that specific reason. So it's going to reach out for the most efficient tool you have available to you. So once this happens, we can immediately feel it in the body. Then we find ourselves reacting without even thinking. The reactions we have are our brain and body's way of taking control of the situation and making it safe. It's increasing whatever control it can to make you feel safe, no matter the long-term consequences of that. Whatever tool we find ourselves using is the exact one our body is used to using and believes is the best tool for the job. One caution here is to make sure that you do not judge whatever tool you use, whether they're good or bad. Instead, try and see if they're useful or not. It's not about good or bad, but about effective or not effective. A useful tool, whatever it looks like, gets the job done in the moment and does not have lasting negative consequences after the fact. A tool that is ineffective or not useful is the one that may have done its job in the moment, but it but in the long term has caused more trouble than it's worth. And when it causes more trouble than it's worth, whether at the time or after, then we need to reevaluate the tool and build a better habit. Now, that's easier said than done, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So the question here is, what are the habits and tools, and why, and sorry, what do they look like? So I've given an example right on, right, a few moments ago of what some of them look like. Like, uh, sorry, let me give you an example. So a couple of the tools are ruminating thoughts. So we all have those anxious thoughts that can keep us up at night. Taking a time out. Sometimes we need to withdraw from the situations for a few minutes and come back to it when we feel better. Uh, seeking comfort, eating, uh, a nice warm blanket, a hug, increased social anxiety, long walks, 
tuning out or numbing, an increased startle response, being jumpy, yelling or increased ang anger, higher irritability, uh, feelings of guilt causing you to withdraw, uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, dissociation. In some cases, being, being in these moments, uh, you're going to look for numbing or, or trying to get out of it and shut off as best you can. And sometimes you're going to dissociate in the moment. I know that one of the, the main things that I deal with is that in the midst of a confrontation, I can uh, escape by dissociating. So somebody can be yelling at me, but I won't be there. I won't know what you're saying. Now, those responses are designed to protect you. And that is a very, really important thing to remember. Uh, that there are a few very important things to remember here. You know, it's really important important to remember that what your body is doing is attempting to protect you. It's coming from a good place and it's stemming from what you've learned over the course of your life as the best ways to help yourself in these situations, useful or not. So a few very important things to remember here, just to recap, is first, as your nervous system starts to rev up and those RPM gauges, gauge, that RPM gauge starts to build, you can feel that in your body, even if it's very subtle at first. Second, the amygdala and your survival instinct only cares about one thing, keeping you alive or protecting you. Same thing. Third, the tools or habits it uses to protect you are the ones that seem like the best tool for the job. These tools are things you've learned throughout your life from a very young age or have picked up along the way that may have been helpful in the past. That's really key here is that it's very important not to judge these tools because somewhere along the way they were helpful in the past, whether or not they're effective now. So what I, the way I want you to see these tools is judge them not if they're good or bad, but what are they doing? What are the benefits? What are the cons? Are there better tools that you want to develop? Right, because it's an automatic habit that's designed for efficiency. It's just the easiest one to grab. It's the only one you know, and it's the only one you've seen that can help. Part of the process that I mentioned above is that these tools might not be working anymore or causing more trouble than they are worth because they're not protecting you in the long run. So I'm thinking of drug addiction or alcoholism, which is a tool used to numb out painful emotions because those painful emotions are so threatening and so painful that they seem like they're killing you. And they're so scary. Uh, or in another sense, uh, in, in a situation of what's called anhedonia, which is where you just don't feel. Uh, you could dismiss your emotions so much because when they were younger, you learned that emotions were so painful or inappropriate or useless that you push them away to the point where you just, you basically feel blah all the time. And what's happened there is this repeated use of a habit of pushing your emotions away that anytime one sneaks in, it's very overwhelming. So basically think of the tools that are protecting you at the time but causing more trouble they work they might have a lot more repercussions than what you're trying to protect yourself from so like i mentioned before the examples like alcohol alcohol or drug use um, or dissociation and i mean with dissociation it seems like you lose time or disappear into your mind when you get stressed out so think about are they useful or not did they help in those specific moments even if they caused pain and discomfort later on well yeah sometimes However, these tools may seem like they no longer work because you're having negative effects of alcoholism or drug addiction or dissociation. You know, in the case for myself, I wasn't very present in my own life because I was scared all the time. 
I was so anxious and I was, I was dealing with so, so many things that were causing me stress that I was just vacant from my own life. The important thing to remember is these are the tools we have right now. The ones we have at our disposal at this exact moment. And if they no longer work or causing more trouble, that's a sign that these tool, that, that, that a new tool is needed. It's okay for you to be dissatisfied and uncomfortable with the tools you're using. But remember to be gentle about it and say, you know what? This is just all I had at the time, but I can develop something different. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean, you know, when I dissociated and I'm not present for my family, it didn't make me a bad husband or a bad friend. Uh, it, it made me a, a, an absent one and a, f a fearful one. So when they're no longer working, causing more trouble and you need a new tool, you know, it's easy to get caught in the trap of asking ourselves, why do we do these things? Why am I like this? Why can't I just control my responses? Right? All these miracle questions. But I invite you to, to ask a very different question because the reason you're asking like something like, why am I like this? Or why can't I control myself? You know, if I think of instances where you get really mad and you just start yelling and it's really ineffective to do things like that. You feel like you're blowing your top all the time. Really what's going on is you're feeling guilty or ashamed about how you're reacting or guilty and shamed about the tools you're using. And that's feeding into this negative response. It's feeding into the stress level. So these tools and habits are what we have to take back control of the situation. But the goal is that we want to take back control. We want to increase that safety. That's what we're trying to do. Remember, our survival instinct only wants one thing, and that's to keep us safe and alive, right? Those two are synonymous. They're, they're together, safe and alive. It does not care about long-term consequences because that's not its job. Your amygdala's job is not long-term consequences. That job belongs to the prefrontal cortex, the planning part of yourself. The amygdala only has emotions and implicit memories in its arsenal, so it doesn't care what you feel is unsafe, only that you do feel unsafe. Which also means that it doesn't see the tools you're using as good or bad, only useful or not, effective or ineffective. The process to switch these tools around and to build more useful ones is a little bit different. Essentially, it's called hijacking your amygdala. So just to draw the point home, I'm going to bring up something that I, I brought up when talking to Steve Clark in the last podcast, in that uh, my public speaking. So, you know, I was someone who was severely bullied growing up. And so I have a very, I can have a tendency to have a negative uh, self-concept. And, and, and I talk to myself in negative ways, saying things like, you know, I'm useless. I can't do things. Uh, nobody's going to want to hear what I have to say. You know, I'm an idiot. Like all these things. And the only reason my brain is saying those things to me, so this sounds a lot like imposter syndrome, if you know, which we haven't talked about on the show yet, but we will uh, soon enough. I'm saying this to myself in order to stop from going on stage or recording a podcast or going in front of someone in a crowd and speaking. Not because I'm actually an idiot or useless or have nothing to say, but because my amygdala thinks that the act of standing on stage is the same as a saber-toothed tiger coming to kill me. It thinks I'm going to die. And it, there's no difference between the two. So if I think of going to a job interview like I've done in the past, the feelings I get going to the job interview, my amygdala thinks you're going to die if you walk in that room. 
And so that's why it reacts the way it does. That's why when you sit in front of the interviewer, your mind can go blank because your brain's like, well, the saber-toothed tiger's here, so I might as well wipe your memory of this. And that's really how that process works. So to switch those tools up, you want to hijack your amygdala. So let's go into that a little bit. So the first step is to understand what your reactions are. So this is kind of, this is quite the process. So in therapy, when someone is going through situations like this, we're going to go through these steps just as I'm laying them out here. And the benefit of going through in therapy is you have someone to do it with you, to hear what you're saying, to lay everything out on the table, and to give you a new perspective and help you pull these things out of it. So the first step is to understand what your reactions are. So by that, I mean, if you remember earlier, I talked about what my anxious responses feel like. So a nervous stomach moving to my chest, then I get really hot. This is what I mean. Now, this can take a while because the focus is on being gentle with yourself about how you're handling your stress, which simply means, I know I, I hate using the word being gentle, but what I mean by being gentle is not some magic word that you're just supposed to feel. Really, it's about recognizing that you are feeling these things and that it's okay to feel these things. It's okay to be anxious. It's okay that my stomach feels upset when I go towards, you know, recording a podcast and having a conversation. So being gentle with how you're handling these, the stress, paying close attention to how your body is reacting, and how your RPM gauge starts to increase, and when these things happen. That's really key. So once you're able to figure out what your body is saying to you as your stress levels rise, you can find a way to turn that car around. So remember I mentioned that your nervous system is responsible for things like your heart, digestive system, and your lungs? While the nervous system and all the parts it controls work together in unison, meaning what one does, the others do, when your heartbeat increases, so for example, when your heartbeat increases, your lungs start to increase, right? So you start to draw breath in and it starts to be like, so the rapid breath. In short, shallow, bre shallow breathing and your digestive system starts to clench. The only part of your nervous system that you can control is your lungs. So I'm going to put a pause here and really explain this a little bit better because I'm realizing that I'm, I'm kind of jumping the gun here. So the first step is to understand what the RPM gauge is doing and where it shows up. So I've described my stomach, I've described my chest, and I've described the lungs. So what I was doing there is I've spent some time in those stressful situations. Uh, or you can spend some time in therapy describing you know, what shows up first, right? So when I get to a venue and I'm about to speak, or when I, so let's talk about the podcast for a minute. When I wake up in the morning and I realize that, okay, 9 a.m., I'm going to record a podcast. The minute I realize that, my stomach's going to start to get nervous. So that's what I call like level one. So on my RPM gauge, that's like a zero to three. Three out of 10 is where I'll start to feel my stomach. So as I move towards the podcast, so the time's ticking away, it's getting closer to nine o'clock, I'm gonna to start to feel it in my chest. So my chest is gonna to start to get tight. And so that's in around a five or a six on the RPM gauge. If I'm not careful, and I'll explain what being careful is all about, and that's really all about figuring out where to intervene. If I'm not careful, then my chest is gonna get tight and then I'm gonna get really hot. When I start to get really hot, my face will go flush. And that's when I'm between an 8 and a 10. 
So now I'm extremely anxious and I'm hitting my red line. When I hit my red line, if I do not intervene, I'm not going to record. I'm going to cancel the podcast. I'm going to walk away from it. I'm too freaked out. And it's because my body thinks the minute I press record, I'm going to die. There's a saber-toothed tiger waiting under my desk and it's going to eat me. So as you can see, I'm able to map. And I've spent some time on this. And it's it's more difficult for some people. Uh, and I'll explain why in a minute. But I've spent some time mapping out where does this stress take place? And what does it look like in relation to the RPM gauge? And this is so that I can figure out where am I going to intervene so for me, I, I the latest I can intervene is when my chest gets tight. Because if I start to get hot, then the, the jig is up and I'm in my anxiety response now. So let's go back to what I was saying. So now you, you have a better understanding of like how to intervene. So like I said before, the only part of your nervous system that you can control is your lungs. Now... If you notice, your lungs are going shallow and making your heart beat really fast. Well, one one trick you can do is that you can start the process of calming your nervous system down because you can control the rest of it by controlling your lungs. So as your nervous system calms your, your gauge, so as your gauge goes down through breathing, breathing properly, breathing rhythmically, which I'll, I'll go through some exercises a little later on, they... Basically, you've been able to start to go, your nervous system is going to start to, sorry, your RPM gauge is going to start to go down and your amygdala is going to pull back. So in terms of emotional intelligence training, what this means is that your prefrontal cortex is no longer going to be flooded with cortisol, shutting it down because you're breathing through it. You're allowing the, the cortisol to wash away. And you're going to notice that because you're doing that, the environment is going to start to feel a little bit safer you're gaining control in a different way and this is everything to do with how calm and deep you're able to breathe as this happens the cortisol begins to get shed and, and washed away which is going to shut down the event causing the prefrontal cortex to shut down and you're going to start to think again think of it a little bit clearly you're going to be able to be a little bit more curious about what's happening and so the i'm going to give you a few techniques to help you do this. Uh, but I want to really make sure that I hammer this home. So essentially what you're doing is you're you're hijacking the amygdala response work. So you hear this a lot in, in things like mindfulness exercises or or yoga, right? Or, or, or even just our, our normal colloquial chatting with each other where we say, hold on, take a breath, man. Take a breath, just, just breathe for a minute. And if you're anyone like me, like back in the day before I understood how this worked, that pissed me off. If somebody just said, take a breath and calm down, I would just get a lot more angry or a lot more activated. But now I understand that I wasn't being dismissed. They were just teaching me how the brain works. Simple as that. So hopefully that makes a lot more sense now. And so what you're doing by learning these hijacking techniques is you're learning a new habit for your brain to reach for when it starts to get activated to help you think a little bit clearer in these situations so you can decide what to do and not react automatically. So you can decide to welcome certain emotions or reach out for social support, for instance, instead of reaching out for the bottle. So that's one example. 
So one of the first tools for hijacking the amygdala uh, are called grounding techniques. So remember I mentioned the shallow breathing is connected to the heart, right? So we've talked about this a little bit. So basically what I want you to do is to picture yourself having like an anxiety response. Uh, you know, where those, those thoughts, you're ruminating, they're, they're going around in your head. And what I want you to do is to, to, to imagine, you know, the ruminating thoughts and all of those things that are like swimming in your head right now. Those are your amygdala's attempts to gain some control. And those thoughts aren't necessarily helpful, but they're designed to get you to increase safety in the environment or to stop you from doing whatever it is you wanted to do because it thinks it's unsafe. And the first thing is to let your brain do that. If it's talking, let it talk, but no, don't necessarily hold on to it or don't argue with it. Just let it do its thing. And I mean, this really works well for me is what I'll do is I'll stop whatever I'm doing and I'll do whatever the hell it wants while I start focusing on breathing. So for one thing, the ruminating thoughts is a tool your brain is using in order to attempt to plan for every scary situation possible, every possible outcome that can show up. Now, in these situations, you may feel stuck. Uh, sometimes you can't sleep because you're thinking everything through and you're ruminating so much you feel like you're like a hamster on a wheel. What your brain is trying to do with that is it's attempting to increase safety by uncovering every possible avenue of what's happening and how to plan for it. But we know that doesn't really work, right? However, as we all know, to this leaves us spinning our wheels and ins- dealing with like insomnia because we're trying to chew on questions we can't answer or problems we can't solve. Or in, in most cases, we're trying to account for things we can't possibly be responsible for. So I know when you hear that, a lot of people are like, why the hell are you worrying about that? Why the hell are you doing this? Well, the only reason is because your brain thinks you're going to die if you don't, which we know isn't true, right? Which means it's just scary. So essentially you're using rumination in an attempt to feel better, which we know it doesn't make you feel better, which then we know is maladaptive, which is another way of saying it's an ineffective tool. So, I mean, maybe it's a situation like public speaking where the only outcome or the only solution is is really to, to go through it recognize that I want to be doing this and so I have to move through it so now what I need to do is map my RPM gauge and figure out where am I going to intervene so that I'm able to do it and to sort it out so one of these techniques which is grounding uh, is to essentially plant your feet firmly on the ground really feel the floor and feel how solid that foundation is you could be sitting or standing for this and You know, if you have a carpet at home or a cold floor, you can take your shoes and socks off and get the sensations on your feet that it's there. So you're going to focus on the sensation of whatever your feet feel like. While your brain is doing whatever it's doing, you're focusing your attention on your feet. And so this is a grounding technique because it's bringing you into the present. And, you know, if it's helpful, you can move your toes around on the carpet or feel how smooth the, the hardwood floor is. So focus your attention on the base of your feet and then close your eyes. And what I want you to do is really breathe. And what you're going to do is you're going to breathe in deep and breath is comfortable. So the way you want to be doing this is you want to breathe in and then breathe out longer than what you did to breathe in. But you want to pay attention to making sure that you're not breathing in to the point where you feel like you're going to blow up or your lungs are going to burst or it's uncomfortable in any way. It has to be rhythmic, calm, and comfortable. 
And then you're going to continue this breathing in and breathing out until you feel better. Could take 20 seconds, could take 10 seconds, could take 10 minutes. It depends on what response you're having and how high up the RPM gauge you are. So do this a couple times. And remember that anxiety is like a wave. It comes in waves. Um, and you're trying to ride the wave and calm it down. So what you're doing here is you're giving yourself the benefit of space. And you're hijacking the amygdala by showing it that the environment is actually safe because you can breathe calmly. And by breathing calmly, your heart will follow. And once your heart follows, everything else will calm down from there. So if you do this, what I recommend is... Hmm, don't think of it... How do I put this? Think of it as a tool, right? And basically, you're reteaching your body how to become in those moments. And what you're essentially doing is teaching your nervous system that there are situations that, although scary, are not unsafe. Or... You're teaching your nervous system, and this is another way to look at it. You're teaching your nervous system that though you feel unsafe, you can handle it. But at this point, your nervous system doesn't know that. And it might not know that because you might have had significant stresses in your younger life. You might have been in situations that were really... So for myself, because I was bullied so severely, that other people make me feel uneasy. Oftentimes other people that I talk to uh, stress me out or meeting people new is really scary because I don't know if they're going to react negatively to me or if there's something about me they're not going to like because of what I experienced in my younger years. Now, as an adult, that doesn't happen most of the time because I can handle meeting new people and I like meeting new people. I like getting out there. I like doing these things. So I have a lot of counter examples and experiences that I know cognitively I can handle these unsafe situations and I want to be there. Even if my nervous system doesn't quite understand that because there is a disconnect. So basically by doing these things, these grounding techniques, you're going to teach your nervous system that the pressure you're feeling or the stress you're feeling, it's okay to have it. And it doesn't necessarily need to amount to a full on red line response. So the other technique you're building here is uh, by taking mindful breaths, is that you're giving your, your nervous system uh, a chance to learn a new technique while neglecting the old technique. So you're, you're basically showing it, okay, we've got two possible responses that we can have. This one feels better. And you do, that's why it takes some time to do this because essentially you're teaching your nervous system what's okay and that you can handle it. Now the next technique is called feet up the wall. So this was taught to me by my supervisor who you're going to meet in July, on July 11th. Her name is, is Megan Cumming. Uh, she is a registered psychotherapist and she is the owner uh, and CEO of the Kempfold Stress Relief Center where I work. So she, she taught me this. And she taught me a lot about how this works in general, a lot of what you heard today. So this technique is called feet up the wall. So this one is kind of funny, or at least I laugh which is great because humor is, is also a coping technique and something that I use quite frequently. So when you're in the heat of the action and your anxiety is getting the best of you, just seek, seek out and look for like a quiet room you can lie down on the floor in. And basically sit down in front of a wall or lie down in front of a wall and put your feet up the wall, almost making an L shape, right? Your feet are directly up to the wall, your butt's against the wall and your back is on the floor. And what you're going to do is take your hands and place them on your belly. 
so that you can breathe deep using your diaphragm. So the way you want to breathe, and this is in the other situation as well, is you're breathing from your stomach, not your chest. And it doesn't mean your chest doesn't fill, but it does mean your stomach fills first. And basically you're, rhythmic, basically you're going to rhythmically and calmly breathe deep, so longer on the out than in, uh, in a calm fashion. And you're going to do this the same way each time for long enough to, for those anxiety waves to go away. And now keep in mind that sometimes I will get the giggles when I do this because I feel ridiculous and I like it. I like feeling ridiculous. I'm a bit of a goofball if you haven't noticed. Uh, so when I close my eyes, I will start laughing. So sometimes I will keep my eyes open or sometimes I will move with the laugh because laughter is, is fantastic. Can't go wrong with laughter. So this is, whether you start laughing or not, it's going to calm your nervous system down and it's going to teach that safety piece. But for those of you who are fully comfortable with it and you get the idea uh, and you, you like it, you can also uh, level this technique up a bit by putting some weight on your stomach. You can put a pillow and then you're going to hug the pillow or you can put a book on your stomach. Uh, putting some weight, you get creative with it, it's going to increase the, the hug-like calmness that'll come over you as you do it now another one which really works works really well for me specifically as someone with adhd uh, is long walks i like to move i like to move a lot i'm quite hyperactive which is a great way it's something that i really value about myself but when i get an anxiety response i do get even more hyper gotta do something gotta move it's almost like i can walk on the walls and so what i do is i'm gonna go find somewhere nice to walk in so that i can really breathe in my landscape, the the grass on the ground. I, I have a forest near my house that I walk through quite frequently. It is beautiful. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I really like the feeling of wind on my face. So if it's a windy day, that's that's doubly awesome because then I get to feel it on my face. And the idea is that while my thoughts are ruminating or I'm freaking out about whatever it is I'm freaking out, I can let those thoughts do their thing, but focus more on the wind on my face or the beautiful greens of the forest. Uh, or in the wintertime, the crunch of the snow. So I, I think you're getting the idea here. And you're always going to want to walk in a pace that's comfortable for you. I walk quite fast and that works perfect for me. Now, what happens when you're in the, like the thick of it, right? You're, in, you're having a confrontation. You're in the midst of the job interview. You can't really say, hold on, I'm going for a walk, right? And you're in those situations, you know your, got, your RPM gauge is, is revving at maximum and the situation is right in front of you. Maybe you're in an argument uh, or the job interview, like I mentioned, or like myself, I'm recording or live on stage, right? <clears throat> if I'm live on stage, I can't really just blankly stare at the crowd for an hour that wanted to see me. Or I can't just be <laughs> record nothing and publish a podcast. So firstly, the above techniques related to regulating your breath in a calm, fact, fa calm fashion is going to go a long way here. But you're not going to be able to do it for a long period of time. You can't really, I couldn't be on stage and just breathe for 10 minutes. So the one I mentioned before are going to be really good. But if you're in the heat of it and your energy is like right through the roof and you can't leave the situation, you're going to want to be able to take a minute to be mindful of your surroundings and remember so you're going to want to take that deep breath and maybe so for me what I'll do is if I have the microphone in my hand in my free hand 
I'm going to rub my fingertips. I'm going to focus on the feeling of the sensation, the physical sensation of the rubbing and being in that moment. I'm going to feel the ground that I'm standing on or walking on. And I'm going to hone in to that by remembering the experiences. So I remembered before. So this is where this comes in. Ahead of time before you go into these events, what I want you to do is write down, uh, basically write down some experiences you've had where, yes, you were anxious, but you managed to give the anxiety the slip and handle those situations anyway. So if I think of like confrontations, you know, think of those moments where, you know what, I did get hot, but instead of blanking out or yelling, I was able to pursue that conversation. What did I do? What did, what did I do in those experiences to give anxiety the slip? So this is a little bit of narrative therapy here. Or when I'm on stage, if I start to get nervous, if, if I start to get hot on stage, normally that's where the red line kicks in and I run for it. Or in the cases in the past, I puke or pass out. So how did I, how did I give that the slip in order to enjoy what I'm doing now? Well, I remember that in the beginning, the situations where I was able to just do it, that fear and that nervous system that I nervousness that I experienced transformed to excitement because I I actually love this, and those moments where I was able to transform into excitement, those are the moments where I was in the zone. I loved what I was doing so much, and I was so focused on the how grateful I was to be able to do it that I got transformed into it. So now with the the conversation you and I are having right now as the listeners, you know th- this started from maybe two or three paragraphs I had written down uh, that I read and then I just launched into it because I was so excited to do it. So I do have a paper in front of me that I was going to use, but I'm so excited to have this conversation that I've long lost where I was and jumped out of it. And that's because that excitement, that nervous system I was feeling before it now has a new meaning because of the experiences of enjoying it before. So right now, spend some time writing down similar situations that you hadn't been in uh, where normally your red line response was, would happen, but you gave it the slip. And try to figure out wh- what feeling, what was different about those situations? What did you do different? What different values did you bring into it? What, so for me, it was the excitement piece. I actually love doing it. What, what, what essence of gratefulness can you bring in and say, you know what? I can handle these situations. Here's why. And then try to embody that as you're in the moment. Right, so job interview is a good time where this comes up. So for a job interview, remember, you know, in in most instances, you've had a job before. You've passed an interview before. And what you did was, you know, you either was, you recognized that you were a good candidate for the job. Or that uh, one really good thing to remember in an interview is that when you're in an interview, you're not the only one being interviewed. But the interviewer is interviewing you're interviewing the interviewer too because you don't want to work in a place that's shitty or sucks and if you get a bad vibe you're not going to want to work in a, a place that gives you bad vibes right so it kind of you kind of are able to regain power and stand in a place of power because you know what i i'm also interviewing the interviewer i want to be here and i need to make sure that i want to be here with you i need to make sure that this job is right for me as well so instead of feeling like you're on the chopping block you can recognize that I have some power in this dialogue as well. And that's going to help you f- come back into the present moment to go through it. So hopefully that makes sense. So, And that's a bit of a mindfulness technique as well. 
Now, and one other technique you can use is to avoid getting your prefrontal cortex clouded is to start asking yourself different questions. So I mentioned before that your amygdala is responsible for protecting you. You know, it's based on emotions, implicit memory, all that jazz. And it has nothing to do with thinking things through, nothing to do with planning and nothing to do with curiosity. So one way that you can keep the prefrontal cortex online while you're getting anxious is to ask yourself different questions. Don't ask yourself, what am I going to do? Ask yourself, you know, when I was in this situation in the past, how did I handle it? So that's a little bit about what we talked about before in the, in the exercise I just gave you. Or ask, so this one comes up a lot in therapy. So let's say you have, you're a parent and you have kids. And your kids, as we know, kids will be kids. They're wild, they're curious, they're crazy. Um, some situations where you're getting so worked up because they're not listening. And you don't know what to do and you kind of lose it. Every parent does this. Every parent gets angry. When you can feel that your chest is getting tight or whatever your gauge looks like, when you feel like, oh, I need to intervene, ask yourself a different question. Instead of saying, you know, for instance, like, why won't my child just go to bed? Damn it, right? Ask yourself, I wonder what, I wonder what's going through their mind when they get really excited around bedtime. I wonder what bedtime means for them. It's a very different question, right? And then you can actually bring them into it and ask them. And regardless of their age, uh, well, so long as they're speaking, they're going to be able to have an open dialogue with you. And it's going to be a very different event than you just getting mad uh, and like doing whatever you do. Um, it's a very different scenario, isn't it? So you ask yourself a very different question. So for the instance of the interview, right? For the interview, when you're walking into the interview, you can think of things like, okay, well, here's my resume and do this before you get there. Here's my resume. I am qualified. I do want to work here, but why should I want to work here? What sort of boss do I want to have to make this an enjoyable experience? If I'm going in for the interview, what sort of snapshot does this give me of the place I'm about to go to work for? And it's going to help you enter that conversation curiously. It doesn't mean your anxiety will go away, but it does mean you're able to handle it a little different. And it does mean you're going to be able to take control of those redlining moments. So hopefully this, this makes sense. This is quite a lengthy uh, conversation we just had, uh, you know, with me and you. Uh, so throughout this podcast, I'm hoping that you're able to make sense of what's going on when you get anxious. You can understand the inner workings understand what the amygdalas has to do with it, uh, understand different tips like breathing and grounding, mindfulness, being curious as to how to get yourself out of it or to take more control of the situation. I hope you understand that when you get anxious, you're attempting to take control because things feel unsafe. And whatever habits you're enlisting to do that is trying to get a sense of control. And it's it's less important to judge those. In fact, it's very, it's very harmful to judge those because that's going to elicit a, a guilt and shame response when... There's nothing to be ashamed about, but rather ask, you know, is it effective or ineffective? Is this doing what I want it to do? And is this how I want things to go? If not, how would I like things to go? And how can I build those? So what I'm going to leave you with uh, is a little bit of just, just, a, just a thought to remember that, you know, in therapy, a lot of what we're going to do, especially when we deal with anxiety is to get, to get to know 
that anxiety response. To get to, to ask you questions like, what do you think anxiety wants from you? What do these techniques signal for you? And then also to find out, okay, well, where, where did we first build those habits and techniques? Where did you learn to protect yourself this way? And then move on to, is this how you want to protect yourself? Is this effective? Right? You know, one analogy I always use with these things is like, you know, if you're putting up a picture on the wall, you can use a, a hammer or a screwdriver. Both will work. One is going to make a mess, right? But both will get the job done. And so the conversation through therapy is really, okay, well, what tools would I rather be using and how do I get there? So you go through these emotional regulation pieces where you can learn to breathe and learn to accept how you're feeling and then learn how to make a map into to feeling the way you want to or responding to the event in the way that you find valuable. Because for a lot of these anxiety responses, you're coming up against things you want to do, like public speaking or getting a job or meeting new people or dating, you know, or having a thoughtful conversation with someone you love and you find it very difficult to do that or having a conversation with yourself if you're, you know, for, for people who, who deal with, you know, dismissing their own emotions or, I mean, there's a lot more work that goes into it there, but the anxiety behind allowing yourself to feel an emotion is very similar to all these things because you want to feel that emotion, right? There's a core need you want to be able to express and that wound of shame and guilt and pain is stopping you from doing it. So a lot of these tactics you're using is to try to heal that core wound, but not necessarily get you to that need. And so an effective tool is going to help you heal that core wound by giving you an avenue to express that need. So hopefully that makes sense. So if you have any questions, you know, reach out. I'm I'm on Instagram. Couch to Couch is on Instagram. You, you can also find me at ksrc.ca. That's Campfield Stress Relief Center. So send me a question and I will happily answer them as we go. I'd like to get this community going. And most importantly, if you have things you want to see in the podcast or questions you want me to, to ask our guests, feel free to reach out. So once again, if you look up on Instagram, the tagged for the show is couch.2to.couch. So that's C-O-U-H-C. Wait, what have I done here? <laughs> C-O-U-C-H dot T-O dot C-O-U-C-H. And that's on Instagram. So come check us out. Send me a question. Uh, I'd be happy to help. All right. Thank you for paying attention to the show and take care.